Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome to the building science. To the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm your dutiful producer, Miguel, here this week with another crossover episode. We had such a great response from so many listeners after the last episode that we thought we'd do it again with an entirely new show. The podcast we're introducing you to this week is hosted by one of the Building Science Podcast's favorite guests of all time, Mr. Robert Bean, who is a true gentleman and a scholar, and his co-host, Adam Muggleton. And the show, if you haven't heard it already, is called The Edifice Complex. Yes, that's right. It's called The Edifice Complex. And it covers all things in the built world. We like it a lot, and we think you will too. So without further ado, here's an episode of The Edifice Complex featuring an interview with our own host and hometown hero, Christoph. In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find... Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So yes, (laughs) I am the official agitator and rager against the status quo. (laughs) (laughs) For, For today's episode, we're going to jump into the ethos of mechanical design and building science with Christoph Irwin. Christoph has a degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in physics, if I get that right, and has uh, worked in a charged particle beam and I'm going to try to say this right, a gyrostron <laughs> lab. And, and get a load of this, he also worked at the hypervelocity wind tunnel facility at NASA. So today he's the lead engineer and uh, principal of Positive Energy, an engineering firm in Austin, Texas, and host of the Building Science Podcast. We're going to talk about that. He's a great friend of ours and many others in the industry, always inspirational to talk to. And uh, welcome to the show, Christoph. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Christoph, we want to know, and everybody else wants to know, how you ended up at NASA and now is principal of one of the most progressive engineering firms in Austin. Tell us your story. All right. So it was actually the Navy. It was a wind tunnel with the Navy. Ah. I did live near NASA in Greenbelt, Maryland. But I guess in terms of career path, like a lot of young engineers, I spent a lot of time at the university. I majored in electrical engineering and then ended up studying more physics in my master's. So I actually have a degree in what's called electrophysics, which is a bit of a combination. And I did high energy research projects. Those things that you tried to pronounce were called gyrotrons. Um, okay. I did on a particular flavor of gyrotron, klystrons, magnetrons. So the microwave oven, have you ever used a microwave oven? Those have magnetrons in them. They make microwave energy. So it is relevant. University research can be relevant. <laughs> and I try to go through this fairly quickly, right? So you bunch of time at the university, 
university labs, federal government labs, always applied research. And therein lies the connection to what we do now with similar to you, Robert, uh, with building science and mechanical engineering. High energy physics or good old mechanical engineering, you begin hand in mind, like what do we want this thing to do? Right? What do we want this machine to do? And at the university, boy, oh boy, was it particular that we really needed it to do something. So beginning with the end in mind, like let's say I'm making a gyrotron. Obviously, I'm going to do a lot of calculations, a lot of modeling, and then I'm going to cut metal. I actually spent a lot of years in machine shops. I learned to weld. I learned to machine. And I build something, and it was built based on what I needed it to do. It was not built based on low first cost or what the preferences of my funding committee were. And then I get it into building. So basically, yada, 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 basically like a 14-year career doing various applied research projects for government university labs. And I actually grew a little disillusioned of academia, I guess you could say. And I, so I left University of Texas at Austin. And within a few weeks, my neighbors were asking me to do remodeling projects on their home because they had seen my wife and I work on ours. And after about a year of that, I said, oh, instead of looking for a career, I'll just build houses. And I guess I was kind of buying old beautiful bungalows here in downtown Austin and fixing them up and selling them, kind of flipping before flipping was cool, before it was a thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a lot of stories associated with that, but really good experience. To You know, I was a custom residential builder for about 12 years, and then 2007, eight happened, and I was did a big big pile of debt <laughs> as a business owner. And um, yeah. but in the meantime, I had already, what had happened, I guess it was fortuitous, and I haven't really told the story, is that the city of Austin started requiring performance testing at final to get your permit, to get your certificate of occupancy. And that meant blower door and duct blaster. And so, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer and I'm coming out of labs and I see equipment coming into my <laughs> job site and I'm like, all right, we're talking. <laughs> So I am like the worst enemy. I'm following him around. What does this mean? What does that mean? I had a guy turned to me and put his hands out and said, look, I just know how to set it up. And I just know how to take the data. I don't know what it means. <laughs> Completely unsatisfied. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what the numbers mean? So I enrolled in a ResNet training class and uh, loved it. You know, I, I really appreciated that there was systems thinking and that there was the ability to look at this, the climate, the occupant, the enclosure, mechanical systems as one thing leading to an outcome. And so I got certified. I started teaching for ResNet training classes, ended up growing a little testing business. And um, boy, oh boy, was it quickly apparent that the rules, quote unquote, the ACA, let's say manual SJDT, we're not being followed. And so, you know, I've, I've left out quite a bit, but basically getting to the end of it here is we do mechanical design for residential systems. And it's a specialized field. Very few people know about it. Very few people do it. And I think it's been a timely, uh, we've lucked out that it's been timely because generally speaking, human society today is experiencing a lot of very nice, sophisticated products in their world and the home is not currently one of them but it could be yeah so I, i've got a couple of questions off that so one is do you consider yourself then would you describe if i said to you what's your job i met you at a cocktail party i said what are you 
So are you an engineer? Are you a developer? Are you uh, a mad wow. scientist? <laughs> well, I am a PE. I have, you know, I, that credential lets me call myself an engineer. However, I think that really at a very basic level, me as a person, I'm a problem solver. And it would be so nice if the problem that needed to be solved was an engineering problem. But it's not. It's human psychology that we're dealing with. It's systems thinking. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, buildings are a huge laggard technology, and the public generally doesn't realize the astounding upside potential that's not happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on the problem, you know, and that means integrated project delivery, IPD, mm. right? Yep. That, that's very important. And then something I learned from Robert that we call human factored building design. And that, you know, you've probably already said it, is design around people. A good building follows. That so doesn't happen. We currently design around visual, spatial aesthetics. We design around people's personalities. We design around what their mental constructs regard as a good house, meaning big and maybe opulent or whatever. But, you know, whatever they want. But we don't design around their lungs or their thermal sensors in their skin. And we darn well should. Yeah, as an ex-developer, well I, can, I can tell you that uh, developers, as far as they're concerned, will tell you that bathrooms and kitchens sell houses. So they must be shiny and they must look good, and that is it. That's about as far as yeah. the thinking goes. Well, when you also think the carpentry that can be from where the oil it is, it's perfect. Mm. Because that's going to be inspected very carefully. So I looked at your website and I saw your video called Hitting the Reset Button. That really struck a chord with me because that's my basic thesis is, for God's sake, can't we just all agree this isn't good enough and do something better? And I I like that. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. But can you talk about what prompted you to do that video segment? Because that really sort of sums up how I feel about it. Before you do that, Christoph, I'm I'm just going to read a couple of sentences that Christoph, you guys uploaded on your website. It's just sort of to set the stage because I thought this was some really great words that you wrote. So I'm just going to read this. And it, and what it says, it's time to find the reset button. It's time to reexamine our view of what we know about delivering condition spaces to our clients and to ourselves. The upside potential in buildings is staggering. For some vantage points, it's astounding and inexpressible why the very places we live continue to be held in a laggard state of performance relative to what is possible. And I think that's awesome. Our industry transition is held captive to an outdated version, or vision, sorry. And without a proper vision, our mission, strategy, and tactics are ineffective. Right. That, that is bang on. So yeah, and Adam had a good question. There. Like, what led you up to that? Well, just like you guys, right? I'm, I'm just all of us and all of us listening. And part of being human means you have emotions. And part of that comes from what you care about. And for whatever reason, my wiggly path through life has led me to care about buildings and particularly homes, right? So I actually am, it's weird. It's like the uh, old expression, looking for your keys under the street light. Like you dropped them over there, but you're looking here because the light's better. We as a society right now, we seem to be looking for the solution for good buildings in commercial buildings. You know, that's not People spend their time. It needs to be homes. And I'm I'm through mincing words around that. It, so many years as a building science consultant and an engineer, it was like, oh, we really should say buildings and not homes because that's where the money is. Um, <laughs> but, but reeling myself back. So, you know, the core reason of what led to those words on that reset podcast was caring, 
was frustration, exasperation, disheartenment, and just the recognition that if more and more of society had the proper vision of what a home could do for them, right? It can support your immune system. It can give you a better night's sleep. You know, ultimately, anything, any decision that anyone on the owner side or the architect side makes, you know, on behalf of the owner, what they want to do is they want to give that owner a good experience. Well, what does that mean? They want to give that owner a good felt sense of their home, not necessarily a good thought. They want to feel good about what they've done, what they have. And that feeling tone is really, you know, and I realize this sounds a little woo-woo, but I do live in Austin. So you, you know, you build the house and you put Robert Bean in his house and you say, what do you, you know, what do you think of home? And you mean think, you mean, how do you feel about this home? How do you feel right, right now? And that's informed from your limbic system which is informed, as you know, Robert, it's coming out of your, not a neocortical construct. It's your body just bubbles up this sense, felt sense of life. And I don't know if you guys know this. I read a book several years ago. It's something like one 250,000th of what your body experiences makes its way to your brain. Wow. It was between 250 and 50,000th and 250,000. So basically our bodies are just taking in this massive bandwidth of data and a little bit of it goes into our consciousness. Oh, I think I need new windows, right, <laughs> or something. Yes, that, that's a good question. So I just want to make one more point, and it is that it's so tempting to feel down on the industry. But what I'm trying to do as a person and as a business, positive energy, let me check out the name, positive energy. Obviously, it has to do with net positive energy homes, but it yeah. also has to, like, yes, we can. We can do this. And implicit in that is I have a lot of confidence in human nature, right? It's tempting at this time in the press cycle or what's happening in world events to feel a lot of disheartenment about human nature. But I know that parents that have kids or, or aging parents in their homes, that if they understood that their air filter was a very poignant moment in their in their lives, <laughs> they would make better decisions. You know, as I say take meetings. This is another thing that might be useful for this episode is like, what do you say to people that get through, especially when they, if any of us are thinking about building a house, it's like a gauntlet of decisions, right? And that oh, kind of yes. shuts us. Yeah. So one of the things I say to them is I say, you know, does anybody in your family buy organic produce? And almost always right here in Austin. Yeah, definitely. Right. So why do you do that? Well, I want to reduce pollutant exposure. You know, I don't want all these crazy chemicals in my body. Kaboom. You yeah. just got them. You've, you've said, you can say to them next, you're just telling me that you have a value preference system that says I want a really good particular capture system in my home. I want it dedicated to humidifier in my home, right? And it comes out of organic produce. Yeah. So it's an interesting uh So do interesting you think, yeah. I mean, People, in certainly in the Western world, have a very strange relationship to their home. And I think where it's going to skew is people perceive their home as an investment, not a comestible, right? And that's where it's wrong because I personally think a home is not an investment. It's about, you'd be better off putting your money in the stock market, quite frankly. But your home is something like a car. You should buy it like you're buying a car. If you want the leather seats in the car, you have them, right? If you want, I don't know, the uh, HEPA filter, you should have it. And that's got nothing to do with what you might sell that house for down the road, right? 
Absolutely not. Exactly right. A home yeah. is a hedge against inflation, maybe. It's certainly not an investment. Actually, if you do the analysis properly, it's a poor investment. And I think that's Long where term. people go wrong. I mean, in Canada at the moment, you know, you could, excuse me, you can do, build dog shit and sell it, quite frankly. And it's, yeah. and that's the problem, right? So there's a, people get what they ask for, right? People are willing to buy dog shit, so they get given dog shit. So the question is, how do we educate people that, all right, you're not going to win the argument that a house isn't an investment. I think that's so bogged into people's mythology, it's not going away. But you could sell them on the benefits, right, instead of the shiny countertop. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a while um, back I wrote an article. It was called, In a Town Called Comfort, Only the Blind Can See. <laughs> I remember that. Right? And one of the things that we do with clients, and Christoph, I think you and I have talked about this before, is that, you know, we'll get the client to go back to their existing home and literally sit down in the middle of each room and close their eyes and let their other senses engage. And so do they hear when the toilet flushes? Oh, that drives me mad. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> well, now that explains everything, Adam. Now, now we know. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, so you think about what the, what people smell, what they feel, what they hear. And that only comes about by shutting down your visual stimulation. And where that came from was that I watched the movie with Stevie Wonder. And Stevie was buying a house. And I thought, well, how does someone who is visually impaired buy a home because they're no longer stimulated by the aesthetics. And so their other sensory systems kick in. So in a town called comfort, only the blind can see. And if it's good for people who are visually impaired, it's got to be good for those who have vision. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To to touch back in on Adam's point about the investment, uh, we get asked about ROI all the time. And, you know, it's, it's one of those, you just want to go, ah, You don't get it. So I say things like, well, what's the ROI of your couch? What's the ROI of your (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there is an economic basis. And what you're hearing when someone says, what's the ROI is you're hearing their value preference system. And what they're saying is, I want to make good decisions in my life. And I believe that good decisions have quantitative outcomes. And there's truth in that. There's absolutely truth in that. It doesn't mean that you can quantify the value of putting on your seatbelt, though, right? So, yeah. or or having a good air filter. So, you know, I try to hear back to the deeper message and try to answer that. Right. So, who who's your client said? I mean, you're clearly trying to uh, reach probably a more Informed client are most of your clients informed? How would I describe them? I don't. Know. If I was a nice out, I'd say yuppies, but I can't think of a better way to describe it. So, young urban uh-huh. professionals, or mm-hmm. are they older people, sort of semi-retired or retired, looking for the comfort factor? Who's buying your your story? I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. So, I would say that, unfortunately, I guess I would say that the reality is that most of our clients are not coming to us for the health and comfort. They're coming to us on a more basic level, which is something like, well, I have a structural engineer to make sure my building doesn't fall down, my home stays standing, and can handle those loads, you know, gravity and wind. 
and I'll have a mechanical engineer to make sure it's healthy and comfortable and to deal with those loads, the thermal loads. And so it's, it's much more pragmatic. We really are blessed that here in Central Texas, there's a lot of really thoughtful architect teams. And it was architects. So we put it out there to homeowners, this message starting, gosh, we started Positive Energy in 2007 or eight, something like that. Right. And really, it was, you know, where the business model showed up was when we started to reach out to architects and offer our services to them. And we're very fortunate that we've had some great architects and some great builders. We work with some great mechanical installers, and we have a string of very comfortable clients that are happy, you know, with our work. And, you know, not sounding negative, but really there, what's happened is there, a lot of these architects, the client come to them for a, you know, I'll just say it, right? There's a process that happens. You um, hire an architect that gets handed to the GC. The design gets handed to the general contractor. They hand it to the mechanical installer. And that's where the mechanical design first occurs. Yeah. Possibly, typically, after framing is complete. And so, you know, what we have is what we have is a societal system where for basically 70 years, what society has said to the mechanical installer is, we're not going to listen to you until it's too late to get good ideas from you. And when we do ask you questions, all we're really going to ask you is how cheap can it be and how can you do it? Yeah. And so the mechanical installers are not you know, bad actors. They're responding to what they're being asked and they're being asked for low first cost. And they're yeah. being asked for low first cost because society doesn't understand that there's a huge downstream cost, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I could go on about that, part, but I think I'll leave it there. Part of that is codes too, you know. When so, if like for example, in the, in the National Building Code of Canada, it's basically reducing the probability that illness will result from being exposed to bad moisture conditions, bad indoor air quality, and bad thermal comfort. And and but the operative word there is risk of illness. You know, we yeah. shall not build a building such that there's a risk of illness and nowhere does it say that you shall have comfort. Those are completely two ends of the spectrum. It's like the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good point. Right. And the codes are indifferent to your comfort. They don't, it doesn't care about comfort. It cares about illness. And so when when your basis is based on that and the, and the contractors, the mechanical contractors they know all they have to do is meet the minimum requirements. And what happens in practice, minimums become maximums. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's exactly right. And that's yeah. that's where one of the flaws exists. Yeah, to co- quote right. Jerry Udelson, he says, was it codes of the floor and standards of the ceiling? But it's always the floor is where you wind up. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of like we're living in, you know, like if you go to Cuba right now, there's a lot of 1950s and 60s automobiles and probably a lot of people are driving those and they feel like it's just fine. Yeah. You put them in a Tesla, right, or some other nice vehicle and they'll be like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't realize Yeah, I could have that. Yeah. yeah. So that, imagine that, that, that actually happened right in the frontier days because, you know, when people were riding donkeys and then all of a sudden someone showed up with a thoroughbred horse. And it recalibrated their whole idea of what transportation could be. Actually, let's just yeah, go. Yeah, we're heading forward. Please go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry. I just want to jump down that rabbit hole of comfort and codes for a minute, which is a bit of a thorny discussion. But you know, comfort is a big thing. You certainly know when you're uncomfortable, right? But do codes ignore comfort because it's hard to define? 
because it's so subjective. Is that why, do you think? I think that you want to answer, Robert? Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just that because they have to have the lowest benchmark that everybody can reach. You know, it's like track and field. You don't set the hurdle so high that, you know, 5% of the people can jump over it. When you're in public school, you set it so low that everybody can jump over it. And that becomes, that becomes the, the benchmark. So I think addressing comfort in codes, the way that they do it, of course, is that it can't cause an illness. And as long as you maintain 72 degrees Fahrenheit, that's the benchmark. That's as high as the hurdle needs to get. And of course, that is always referred to as an air temperature rather than an operative temperature, which we went into depth in our discussion, Christoph. Yeah. And you're yeah. Uh, boss. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I could dovetail some thoughts into that. Yeah, so, please. you know, codes are implicitly a governmental organization, although they get adopted by a government organization. There's standards development organization that gets adopted, put into some sort of regulatory structure. And in that, Form, what they're saying is that the government is basically looking for like something like gross domestic product. They're looking at this quantitatively and they're saying the codes are saying, what can we quantify? Well, it's a lot easier to quantify energy use. And mm-hmm. so if you look at the, the code changes and there's a good story about code changes at the end here. But let's just say it this way, that 2003, 6, 9, 12, 15, these have all been big years for code changes and if you want to summarize what they say here in Austin, Texas, the codes say, thou shalt run thine air conditioner less. That's what the codes say, because the <laughs> air conditioner is the, is the big energy user. And they say, why are you going to have better windows to run your air conditioner less? Why are you going to have higher R values to run your air conditioner less? Why are you going to have better air sealing to run your air conditioner less? So they're basically making it all about energy. And the, the story is that I get a lot of these comments. You know, we, we should really talk at some point about pushback from the existing stakeholders in the industry or new ways of doing things generally. Yeah. It is a lot of time to start with the line, son, I've been doing this for 30 years. And you want to remind them, okay, it's 2017. Let's, let's put the middle of the code transition cycle, three, six, nine, 12. Let's say it's 2009, right? So you could say, well, eight years ago, codes radically changed. And that means building physics radically changed. And you have this, code cycle that literally or actually creates a before and after scenario where there's all this experience that occurred years ago and then there's new ways of relating to indoor condition space that needs to stand up now yeah so yeah that's interesting because i think that my theory on a lot of it is having moved to north america from europe so there's a lot of hydronic systems residential and Commercial. So, for instance, when I first moved to Canada, I wanted a house with radiators and, and wanted it built of brick. My real estate agent thought that was hilarious, and I got neither of them things when I bought my house, right? But that's a cultural thing because houses are also a cultural phenomenon, whatever way you cut it. But my theory on North America now, I've been here for a while, is it's geared towards air systems because that is what the supply chain is, right? To change a supply chain is like turning an ocean liner around. It doesn't happen quick. And no one is in no one's benefit who's invested in that supply chain to change it, right? So, you know, why not have hydronic systems in houses? Well, because there's no one to do it. The skill set's lost and the supply chain doesn't want to know, right? They price it out of existence. I found this on a commercial building I did, which was a Lee Platinum building, and it was all um, heavy mass, radiant heating and cooling, man. God, did did the main contractor fight tooth and nail against that? 
it was like bloody revolution, American revolution all over again, right? So, you know, I think supply chain can't be underestimated. But the way I think one possible answer is, you know, going back to energy code, if I was king for a day of America, which is should be happening, um, I would change energy code to be a target of energy per square foot and a resultant temperature or operative temperature range. That's it. Then, Beautiful. Then it would just be on innovation and industry to solve that problem. No lobbyist yeah. allowed. It'll be shot on site and we'll just see what happens. This is why, yeah. I, this is why I'm not king of America, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there is one word in the codes that if you changed it, you would change overnight how people would have to build buildings. And that word is air. Yeah. So when the codes say thou shalt maintain 72 degrees Fahrenheit or 22 degrees Celsius air temperature at design conditions, if you change that to operative temperature or mean radiant temperature, yeah. then automatically you would force the entire architectural industry to look at enclosure performance because yeah. now you're talking about surface temperatures not air temperature mm-hmm. one word one word and if you did that you would probably be able to get rid of the energy codes yeah you one, know, one word but how do we get people to listen to that one word or motivate one word if we get back to where adam went earlier i mean what is the what is the magic key that unlocks actual societal change and unfortunately it's been shown that information does not cause behavior change or information alone. Let me no. be very clear on that. It's not information alone. I agree. So we really need to get people out of their neocortis into their bodies, into their feeling centers, because that's what's really going to be our ace in the hole. And, you know, getting back to, you know, my firm, Positive Energy, we're an engineering firm and we have this really just the fact that we do residential mechanical engineering, that's unique. We also start with human-factored building design, indoor quality, and thermal comfort as a start. But what's interesting is we get a lot of pushback. Strange. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. It's less and less, you know. Yeah. A bunch of good projects under your belt and a bunch of happy clients really makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, but there's, still, there's projects that come along. There's one we're dealing with right now where – you know, there was our design and then there's what got installed and they're not the same. Um, but the owner was like, well, I got a design. It's going to be awesome. And there we get into the process. Right. And the, well, I didn't mean to go down this rabbit, but I'm going to go. So the, the contractor, when they start a project, what is the owner probably saying to them is please keep my costs low and please get this done as soon as possible. Right. Yep. It would be really great if the owner said, you know what's the most important thing is that when it's done, it's done right. But they don't mm-hmm. say that. And we have these TV shows, Extreme Home Makeover and such. And don't get me started on that because I've been given books by my family. You know, <laughs> oh, you'll love this book by this TV personality. It's, you know, they don't know the difference between a vapor barrier and a vapor retarder. Or, you know, that's the <laughs> air control there. It's not. Anyway. The point is that the way public is currently being handled information about buildings, right? Think about hows. I should, maybe I shouldn't say exactly certain things, certain websites, certain TV shows. What the public is being trained to think is it is visual spatial. It is about resale value. Yep. You know, we need some real, some competing TV shows that say, well, wait a minute, it's about, this is where you store your loved ones, right? Right. Right. In this lovely case, and, you know, the air she's breathing is crap. I don't care about that, right? So my daughter herself isn't that important. 
And you know, just just touching back in, like, why is it that positive energy does mechanical designs, right? It's not because there's nothing else that's useful. In fact, I'm tonight. I'm doing a speaker dinner, and tomorrow I'm part of a group that's organized full day conference on stucco, right? So there's lots of things that are important <laughs> that we need better education on. But generally speaking, you know, Robert can attest to this. You can too, Adam. You've been in the industry years. Generally speaking, we're suffering now under the tyranny of enclosurism. People, if they say I have a good building, what do they mean? They mean, they probably mean they have a good enclosure. They might have fluid applied or peel and stick or good window or good air control layers. Any way that the the professionals involved want to like peacock, you know, like, ooh, look at me. I have a good building. It's all related <laughs> to the enclosure. When are we going to hear Merv ratings as, you know, when people right. want to talk about or low duct leakage or dedicated dehumidification or a functional ventilation system? The things that happen in our industry right now for ventilation, oh my God, it's like the Flintstones, you know, and you know, I have some good friends that are builders and really good human beings, hardworking, dedicated people. And yet they'll come, you know, I got to dinner with one of them. You know, I'm just from the, I'm from the HBA meeting and we were discussing implementation of the new energy code. And I'm like, so what do you mean you were discussing implementation of the new energy code? Does that mean you're actually discussing how you would resist changes to the energy code? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, sounds like the resistance <laughs> group, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll be blowing up post offices <laughs> before you know it. <laughs> yeah. Well, one more quick comment related to that. And, you know, it's related to the industry. And, and when it comes so the we do a design, we give it to the project team. And now we've been doing it for many years. So we know around what the design should cost. And we'll see ranges in price sometimes. One bid is double another bid. Yeah. Right. And what, what I see there is that a mechanical installer is really saying, I don't want to install this system. I don't know how to install a system. I don't want to install this system. Therefore, I'm going to bid it so high. Well, it would be a lot better for society if that installer would just say, I don't want to bid this project. Yeah. Because what happens is then companies like mine have to kind of backpedal and re-educate and tell the architect, no, no, it doesn't have to cost that much, right? But all it takes is one data point, one architect says, holy moly, you know, we do one of these designs with positive energy and it's like it's gold-plated. It's not. It's no. just not flagrantly first cost optimized. <laughs> that's right. I mean, the, that's another way contractors deal with it, right? They don't want to deal with it. They price it out of existence. That happens yeah. a lot. That start, that phenomenon was huge in commercial sector when lead gold and platinum buildings became the basis of boasting and lead silver became irrelevant. And some contractors just price them off the table. You know, it's yeah. it's a strategy, I guess. But you're right. It's Again, it all goes back to supply chain. I used to say this in one part of my shtick when I used to speak at conferences, you know, architects think they're in control, but really in North America, the supply chain and contractors are in control. You try to build something, they, you design something they don't want to build, they will throw so many obstacles in your face. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and the super tanker analogy is apt. I mean, yeah. we have installers that have been their designs and been able to grow accordingly, right? So they say, well, you know what? I send my project manager to this site and I hand them your design and I give them your business card and they call you for questions and then I can go to the next site. Like, cause usually it was the, the principal of the firm that would walk the project with the project manager on the, I'm talking the mechanical yeah. installer side. And, and basically in real time, figure out how they were going to do a design, how they were going to integrate 
the mechanical design with the aesthetic architectural design and the structural design. There, that was happening. You know, pop it, watch it, do it now. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. It always comes back to me for, you know, why do we have what we have? Because owners, be that residential or commercial, accept it, right? You couldn't give me a car with defects. Yet somehow you can hand over every building with defects and it is just fine. Even mm-hmm. contractually, that's fine. I just don't get that. Why can't yeah, there's no bi- test drive. Yeah. So, you know, if someone handed me my Tesla and it had, you know, here's, here's the uh, 12 months defects and latent defects list. We're going to come back and knock that punch list out before the warranty expires. You wouldn't drive that car away. Yet it is 100% okay to hand a building over like that. Why? I do not get it. Well, I know why, yeah. because the landlords want the rent roll and someone wants the money, right? And the money trumps everything. But there's a cultural there. Again, I'm a big fan of culture because, for me, I think the differences between everything is culture for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so why are Canada and mm. America different, right? On the surface, they should be very similar, and they are. But there are some also some cultural differences there, right? Same absolutely. with the UK and Canada. Right? I'm a Brit, and I've moved to Canada and become a Canadian. I thought that would be a breeze. Canada is one of the hardest places I've had to settle into because there's a culture here that's just not like my culture, right? It's it's mm-hmm. in, the Brits are very aggressive, the Canadians are not, and it took me a while to tune into that. So buildings are an expression of culture, right? For me, they're art, they're structure, they're technology, but they are also art, and art is an expression of culture, right? So absolutely, but not just the visual art. They're, yes. They're a- Functional art. Yeah, so we. Uh, oh, so you're getting on to one of our favorite podcasts, which is really. I am. Yeah. Share that story. Share yeah. that story. We're <laughs> dropping a podcast on the 15th of this month with Holly Chant, who's an American Brit, who is based in Abu Dhabi, works for one of the big consultants there, and she she was talking about sustainability, and she spoke about performance as a form of beauty in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it's a hidden beauty, right? Mm-hmm. But it is beautiful. Now you, or three of us, can appreciate that because we're we're tech, we're we're engineers, right? But you know, it is a thing of beauty. Somehow we got to get the beauty of performance into the public consciousness, right? Absolutely, and have it as an expression of culture somehow. So does you know people buy houses with nice kitchens and drives and gardens, right? Because there's a peacocking element to that. There's a look at me element to that. So how do we bring performance into that? Does it become a, this is the beauty, I'm rambling here, but I'm on a roll, so I'm going with it, right? So mm-hmm. I came from the UK into North America 10 years ago. Never heard of LEED. We have Briam in the UK, right? It's the most successful yep. green building system in the world that no one knows about. Typical Brit thing, right? So 
I have a love-hate relationship with lead. It is genius and I don't like it all at the same time. I don't like it because it is perceived by the market to be sustainability, end of, it begins and ends with lead, right? That's what I don't like. But the genius of it is in a continent where energy prices are quite low and materials are abundant, it made being having a high-performance building, it became competitive, right? I have a lead gold building, your building's lead platinum. That works. So somehow it got all this sustainability movement going just by making it, a, well, I've got this, why haven't you got that? You know, so first lead mm-hmm. certified was cool, then lead silver became cool, and last time I looked, bragging only began at lead gold, right? I don't, a mm. girl that used to work for me, she used to say, you know what, lead silver, you can trip over a bus stop and get lead silver. I need lead gold, right? <laughs> so my point in this round is this. The lead system commercially on commercial buildings worked. It created a, a competition based on boasting or betterment or whatever you call it, right? So, But somehow it didn't work in residential, right? You can't sell a lead platinum house, because people don't know what it means or don't care for some reason. So somehow we've got to make that that peacocking about performance desirable, right? I don't know how we do that, right? Or do the three of us pitch HGTV and start a show? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That, well, it's starting to happen, Adam, but you can think about it. People want to have pe- solar panels on their roof, right? Now, yeah. granted, they might want to have solar panels on a house that there was a lot of other places to spend the money, but it is evidencing that value preference system that says, I, I want to be seen as caring about the environment, which is a precursor perhaps to actually caring about the environment and yeah. changing action. High-end windows is another one. Sometimes on mechanicals, you get people that are actually, it's rare, sometimes they're interested in certain pieces of equipment. You know, I want that, you know, carrier infinity or something like that. They, they want a certain system. You know, you want to tell them, well, actually, the distribution system is much more important than the actual box itself. You know, the, the Prius with underinflated tires metaphor. Yeah. But where I want to take you, so it's complicated because there's groups like ResNet. There's many local green building programs like Austin Energy Green Building, fantastic program, been around since the 80s. And those groups, they're really working. They're, they're fighting good fight to put quantitative metrics to buildings and, you know, creating an institution to do anything is its own challenge, especially if it's, you know, trying to compete with existing norms. But what happens is also is let's say you're ResNet or let's say you're Austin Energy Green Building. Well, there's a trade-off between how accurate and precise your performance rating is going to be and how much uptake you're going to get from the market. And you want a lot of uptake because you want it to be relevant. But if you really get into it, you're going to be pushing back against the status quo on how homes are delivered to society currently, and everyone's going to get a low rating. Yeah. So instead, you kind of say, okay, you can have this certain number of stars. And really, you know, when I was a builder, I always did the five-star green homes, which is their highest level. It was I would never consider omitting any of the steps that were in getting a five-star with Austin Energy. And yet there are people that will brag about a three-star. And I should be careful how I'm talking here. But what's happening there is a trade-off between relevance in the mainstream industry, which means, you know, I got to give you a relatively low bar, an easy path to compliance versus I really need this to be meaningful. It's a 
dance. It's a chicken. And we're, we're all dancing. Yes, it's a chicken and egg, a chicken and egg game, right? Because you're right. So again, another part of my shtick is, you know, it's great to see solar panels on roofs, but my my point is the sustainability stuff that really matters is things like good envelope, high performance glazing, yeah. great construction standards. They're all hidden, right? Whereas the roof panels are a bit of a a peacock affectation, Absolutely. right? And mm-hmm. but I think maybe you're right. That is the way you get the ball rolling. That is the egg mm-hmm. that brings the chicken, maybe. Yeah, I think all three of us, you know, all of us, all you guys listening to, yeah. right? You have to remember to work with your own disheartenment and you know, anger and outrage and indignance doesn't change society. No. Working with what you have and you know, basically telling yourself, I will never give up. I will keep pushing this ball up this hill for the rest of my career, come what may. It's important, you know, you know, ultimately society changes because people don't give up. And then you can look at larger trends. There's another podcast out there called The Energy Gang that I just love. And basically we're witnessing Amory Lovin's long predicted by industry for-profit revolution in how this country delivers energy to itself, right? Energy yeah. is now a technology, not a fuel, you know? Yeah. Power of technology, not fuels, that's huge. So that's going to drag the home sophistication and building sophistication along with it eventually. So you just have to keep that. You know, I, I don't want to sound too crunchy. I mean, I'm definitely an engineer and I like calculations. I wish that was where where the the lever point is to move this industry. I don't think it is in technology. I think it's in psychology. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's uh, we've we've had a podcast recently about the Internet of Things, which I got some very mixed feelings on. But it's probably moving us in the right direction. But the big piece that is always hard to solve is psychology, and the yeah. culture deriving from that. Right? Uh, I, I I don't know what the answer is. I'd love one though. <laughs> See, you know, one of them is the device. Right? So another great podcast. There's so many out there. Is IAQ Radio? You know, yeah. Joe yeah. Hughes. Joe, yeah, he's uh, one of my heroes, and he doesn't know it, but he's been my mentor for 10 years or something. But the Fubot, right? That some simple device that measures like quality parameters sends it to your phone. I have one. I've recommended it to clients. It's an Internet of Things device, and suddenly a whole um, category of unseen data in the home is suddenly being seen, right? You know, it started out years ago with like Ted, the energy detective monitoring, you know, when you're using how many kilowatts. And now we're getting into real-time indoor air quality sensors. And there's a, there's a reset program, ironically, the reset podcast, different thing out there, the passive house conference. So and reset is a program that on indoor air quality, you can Google it. This internet of things is actually going to poise us to make the unseen seen. And when people go, yeah, my bedroom's lovely, but my PM 2.5 is in the range, you know, that's bad, or my humidity is at a level that's known to cause negative health outcomes. Well, suddenly people are going to start to change. I really believe that. And again, once again, faith in human nature. But the juggernaut of the industry, as you say, the, the super tanker, it can get intimidating. Yeah, it yeah. really can. Actually, that's a good point. I like the idea of so much information becoming visible, but it's been there. You know, like my dog doesn't know the internet exists, but it exists, right? This information exists, but people are not seeing it. So, you know, if that becomes visible and then people start comparing it, you know, well, why why is my house not like their house? 
Maybe that's the answer. That's the thing that turns the, the ocean liner around. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's great that we're having this opportunity to to talk and have like-minded true believers listen. I would love to challenge everyone in the audience to send this podcast to somebody that they don't think would be listening naturally. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, our goal today is not to speak at an engineering level, but to speak at a level of give you the reset vision on what things could be. And man, right now we're we're really struggling through system that's been constrained by low first cost for many decades. And uh right. Yeah. Oh, oh, I had one more thing related to that. Apologize. Here it is. All the people listening, the three of us, any of us, when we're talking to an owner or a developer, right, that is a very poignant moment. That is a moment where you need to say, okay, I need to take a moment, collect my thoughts, take a deep breath and try to share maybe just one idea to make inroads. You know, like developers, we work with some developers that are looking to have brand strength and brand differentiation and it is not to tell them, do you know that health is the new green? The green is on its way out and health mm. is coming in. And oh, I like that. I like that. Health is the new green. I'm writing that yeah. right down. Imagine you're a developer and we talked to one of these and they didn't write, unfortunately, that is making senior living centers, right? Oh my gosh. Talk about a place where good air quality is important. It's going to significantly impact the quality of people's final years. They brand around that, kaboom, man. People are going to be coming to their institutions. They're going to have brand strength. But you need the pump to be primed. Someone's going to do it and show that they're making the money branding that way. But it'll happen. I have no doubt. I hope so. And I, I, I mean, this is the first time we've had a long conversation, but I love your optimism on this because no one elects a cynic, right? No one votes for a cynic. That's why I have to be partnered with Robert because I'm an asshole and I'm angry and I need someone to uh, balance it out. But, you know, the reality is people listen to positive things, right? If you're selling benefits, you're explaining the benefit. It doesn't necessarily turn the tanker around, but you're starting to get the knowledge out there. And that's what we've all got to do. Every engineer who meets with a client, I think, has a duty of care to push these concepts out there. Mm, talk, I agree. Talk about indoor air quality, right? Talk about how VOCs are polluting the indoor space. Who talks about VOCs? I mean, I'm a nerd. I understand yeah. that stuff, but not many people do. That's volatile long-term. organic compounds, by the way, guys. <laughs> yeah. Talk about long-term cost of ownership. And, yeah. Hey, just to talk about your anger very briefly there, because anger is actually connected to beauty, and here's how, right? So your anger is – whenever you see someone angry, you need to know that the, underneath that they're feeling fear. Yes. And what are you feeling fear about? You're feeling fear that the world is not moving in the right direction. What is in underneath that? Underneath that is you have, you have a, a, a sense of proportion of, of beauty, of the way the world needs to be to line up with your internal value preference system. Yeah. And it's not doing it. So it's interesting that anger comes from caring. Well, it you does. Know? I can tell you why. Since I've had children, I've got three children. They're all grown up now in university. But, you know, I always wonder, what is it going to be like for them, right? What is going to happen? I don't want to sound woo-woo, but, you know, I care what happens to my kids and my grandkids and what sort of life is it yeah. going to be, you know, ocean depletion, pollution. And I I am not a green Taliban tree hugger by any stretch of the imagination. I'm about as far away from that as you can get. But I still deeply care about what it's going to be like for my kids. And it does 
piss me off, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. But getting a bit deep here. But, you know, it's it matters because everything matters, right? Really, everything's connected. That's something we've all learned. Everything is interconnected, like the Internet of Things, the people of things, right? We all drink the same water, share the same air. Everything is connected. And if you don't think you're connected to everyone, I, I think you're in for a bit of a shock later on. Oh, God, that was a yeah. deep old rabbit hole. Let me climb back out. Oh, no, <laughs> kidding, man. <laughs> hey, so, I can send we, you. That was a good one, Adam. And you went there. And I'm going to bring my friend April on the next episode. She's a psychologist, brain scientist as well. That's her master's degree. I think she would find oh, this fascinating. The three of us. <laughs> I love it. There's a there's a link I'll send you after this after we finish recording here, Adam. Zach Semke did the keynote speaking this year at Passive House and also right. the year before. And he he's with NK Architects. He has one on building swans and the power of arithmetic. Have you read it? No, but it sounds like sort it's of title a, I would like. Positive, it's a positive message and yeah. it's based on quantified data. So things are poised to change fast and they need to change fast. So yeah. There's reason that. for optimism and really fundamentally human nature, right? We we can't give up. We can't get disheartened about human nature. If we do, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's a great statement. I couldn't agree yeah, more. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's yeah. a little. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Yeah, and I think one of the things, and this is a lesson that I learned here. You know, even at my age, we still learn lessons. And uh, this happened, I think, a year or two ago, and I was giving a lecture. I think it was actually here in Calgary for the local ASHRAE chapter. And and I was talking about the philosophy of sustainability and, and where we're headed. And admittedly, it was a bit of a negative tone, but this retired elderly engineer came up to the front of the stage, said, I really enjoyed your talk, but you need to have more faith in the intellect of our youth. Wow. Oh, that's deep. That's some deep Wasn't stuff. that good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Having faith in the intellect of our youth. One thing that's really key to that, right, exactly, is, is when you think about, for instance, think about the youth. With what they're looking at is they're looking at the world and they're seeing actions that they don't like. But what happens is we quickly seem to connect the action to a person and then we say we don't like that person or we don't like the people, right? Yeah. There's a little protest going in my neighborhood right now over here. And they have these signs all over it that says, oppose so-and-so. And I so want to run around the neighborhood with the little stickers that say, the actions of, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm fully on board with opposing the actions of so-and-so. But I don't know so-and-so. Why would I oppose him, right? Right. Yeah, you gotta... I think it's the actions we don't like. It's not people, right? It's actions. Yeah, this is human tribal nature, right? We've got to get on a team and we've got to attack someone. And that's something we've got to evolve out of, I think. But, yeah, um, yeah, you're right. So look, we're coming up onto an hour. I think most people's bandwidth for a technical podcast is about an hour, in my opinion. So I'd like to try and wrap up. This has been awesome for me, and I've been down some emotional rabbit holes here, and I'm coming back out now, and I'm feeling a bit more chilled. So is there anything you'd like to wrap up or leave us with uh, before we go? Sure. I um, didn't prepared remarks, but I would like to – sound a little more like an engineering building scientist, which is that um, the enclosure is very important. And I'm a little bit in cheek when I talk about the enclosure of the tyranny of enclosurism, but only a little bit, because what I really hope for in the next 10 years in our industry is everyone, all of those who are listening and the people they work with on their teams, 
starts to wake up and pay attention to mechanical systems, right? We need a decade of professionals in our industry that know enough to engage and learn more. And right now, people don't know enough to really engage with the mechanical systems. They're really into it on fluid applieds and peel and sticks and, you know, yeah. window flashing. It's, so I really think that I would like to make the next 10 years one where we push back on the tyranny of enclosureism and encourage people to know about mechanical systems. And then the last two features, I think every person on every project team should recognize that there are different climates in the world, which mean different mechanical enclosure systems are appropriate, and that it all comes down to the occupants. Design around people, yeah. a good build follows. Here, here. Could not agree yeah. more with that. Yeah, I love that statement. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. I think we might tweak yeah. it a little. Yeah. Uh, okay. So just to wrap up then, we're going to be posting, uh, we do show notes with the podcast. So we're going to um, put up the social media links for you on Twitter to your company website. And I'm also going to provide a link to your video hitting the reset button, which I encourage everyone to look. It's four minutes long and it is awesome. That's what I'm going to say. Thanks, Adam. So, thank you, Robert. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. And I'm pretty sure we'll have you on again in the future. And I look forward to actually meeting you in person. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Now, that was awesome. I really like that guy. His positivity was so infectious. He'd make a great teacher. He's the sort of guy you wanted at university teaching you, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That was really good. He made some comments that it was many comments that were really good. One of the ones I really liked, information alone does not create change. That was very insightful because we are just inundated with data and information, right? And it's We not, are. It's, it, maybe it's even detrimental, but one thing I loved, there's a couple of things he said I really liked. Health is the new green. That is yeah. so on point. It is awesome. I've got to yeah. I've got to use that. I I might have to steal that from him. And there was another great one that made me laugh. Air filters, a poignant moment in life. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's passion, man. Why you talk like that? <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing about Christoph. I, you know, the first time we met was actually, um, he was a student in my integrated design course, which is a 14-week program. And, you know, I mean... You get students that come in, and that's a gr- that's a grind. Yeah, that, that course, there's no doubt, it's a grind. You, you know, we we get a few that actually pass. Christoph was one of them, but he just dove right in, and he asked tons of great questions, and he was fully engaged, and he really got. He saw, he he, he came into the program with the pieces of the puzzle already constructed. But you could see in the time that he was in the course, he was figuring out how they were going to come together. And, and when he graduated from the course, it's like he had his marching orders, like he sort of knew. And then every time we met afterwards, you know, we, it was just we kept building on. And yeah. he's a philosopher at heart. You can see he's he's really well read and really well studied in many fields. And the whole con- he made some comments about technology versus psychology. Yes. So Which I thought was brilliant. What what makes him stand out, he's a systems thinker and he's a holistic thinker. So one of my yeah. theories is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, if you were a mechanical engineer, it was probably okay just to be focused on that. 
But the way technology has expanded mm-hmm. and system complexity has expanded, that's not enough anymore. If you want to be a great mechanical engineer, you need to think holistically. You need to know at a pretty good level, you know, about adjacent engineering fields like uh, architecture, mm-hmm. electrical engineering. It isn't good enough just to go in there and be a one-man trick anymore, a one-woman yeah. trick. You've got to be rounded. I think the, the, the engineers of the future are going to be rounded, but they're also going to be subject matter experts in something at a very deep level. You're going to need both mm-hmm. of them dimensions to be yeah. a top of your field. Otherwise, you're going to be in yeah. a cubicle. You know, and... That, yeah. You just said something really important, and that is is that you have to be in in both of those dimensions. I think that's what you... What did yeah, you say? Both, yeah, that's what you said, Both dimensions. Right? You need breadth and depth. Yeah. Right? So if you're a mechanical yeah. engineer, you need super depth at that. You've got to be yeah. like a Jedi Knight, but you've also got to be... have the breadth to understand how your field fits into the building, how your systems impact electrical, mechanical, civil. You know, you can't just be in your own little silo anymore. Those days are just long gone. Yeah. And totally, totally agree with that. I don't think universities are on board with that though. Again, the universities, all right, yeah, they don't, they get the kids for four years and, you know, it's not a full four years, but I just think there's so much needs to be done at the educational level to bring students and technicians into what they're going to face, right? They're not, Mm -hmm. again, this is where I think every faculty should have someone like Peter Rumsey or yourself going in and just saying, right, there's professors that are going to teach you the deep theory. You need that. But I'm here to tell you about the application of what you're going to do because that's what's missing, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The application side needs to be tied with that theory. Otherwise, they come out great at calculus. This was my thing, right? We used to, when I had my business in Canada, we'd interview these graduates and they were clever, so clever. They were great, but they were, I used to describe them as people who are great at calculus and math, but a little bit of thermodynamics, but nothing else, right? So you were getting really a blank slate that you then had to bring into your company and teach them about fans and pipes and ductwork and, you know, and how a building is constructed. So, you know, that's the missing yeah. component. Maybe there's an angle there for uh, know, the Robert and Adam University. I don't know, but there is yeah, there we go. something not quite right with the way engineering is taught. I think it's not holistic enough, I suppose, would be the way to summarize it. Yeah. I mean, I've taken on that challenge in our website on an article about – the trades. And if you look at the curriculum for some of this in the HVAC program, you know, they talk about electrical and they talk about gas and they talk about pipe fitting and sheet metal work. And they talk about, you know, more of the assembly type of stuff, but we don't teach them why they're doing that. No. There's nothing in their curriculum that talks about human physiology or human psychology. But yet at the end of the day, when there's a complaint, it will be a complaint about comfort, but we don't teach them about it. No, the why is a big thing, actually. And I think to motivate people, they have to understand the why for everything they're doing. You can't be motivated Absolutely. if you don't know why. Right. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, I'm so totally with I you. don't know. This weekend we've had a bit of a deep conversation this afternoon. <laughs> we have. Very philosophical. Have. I think I need to go and get yeah. drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back and start working on my house because it's just about finishing the renovation and I'm looking forward to having that project done. Okay. And I can tell you, we had a lot of philosophical discussions on what we were doing about the house. But like Christoph said, 
for us, it was about doing everything right. And yeah. sometimes we had to disassemble things because they were right. Yeah. And that called ultimately the next owner of the house is going to get is something that was done right. Yeah. I hope they appreciate it. Yeah. See, that's embedded value that this could be hard to describe, right? Yeah. 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 Anyway, mate, until the next time. Adam, always a pleasure. All right. See you soon. All right, Dad. Take care. Bye Take now. Care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.